Today we come to Psalm 139, and as I was thinking about this, it's, isn't it interesting that you and I live in a world of convenience? And what do I mean by convenience? I mean, for example, uh, we, we've got minute rice, two-minute noodles. We have microwaves. We have takeaways. We have wireless internet for us to sit with our smartphones or our computers at a cafe as we sip our coffee and we can find out whatever news we want about the world and what's going on. We can we can chat with friends. I mean we have things as we want and when we want. And we get grumpy, you know, if the wireless internet's not working, right? <laughs> right. That, that's, that's the world we live in. We, we live in a world of convenience. That's just some of the things. But sadly, mankind has even found ways to, to, to conveniently destroy tiny babies. Even in New Zealand, we're not exempt from this wicked madness. For example, if you do a, a search on the Statistics New Zealand website, which I've done, let me just give you a few stats from the Statistics New Zealand website, which states that since 1980 to 2014, we, as New Zealand, have murdered approximately 400,000 babies. That's just the ones reported, by the way, to Statistics New Zealand. So I dare say it's probably higher than that. 400,000 babies through abortion. The worst year that's been recorded so far was back in 2003 when we mass-murdered over 18,000 babies. New Zealand, per capita, is one of the worst countries in the world when it comes to abortion rates. Uh, of course, it's up there with places like Canada, the United States, and Australia. Today, teen pregnancy is not shocking anymore. It just seems to be getting younger and younger. I mean, girls you know, young as 12 years old having abortions. Here, here's how it usually goes. You know, teens seem to think they, they live in an adult world where they're just becoming more and more the sinful practitioners of the worst kinds. The usual cycle of events goes like this. You know, boy meets girl. Uh, the boy and the girl are immoral. Girl gets pregnant. Girl aborts baby. That's often how it goes. And sadly, personal convenience often comes before God's law. And that's not the only way we see our world kind of giving in to convenience and doing their thing instead of God's way. Not all babies are murdered. Millions of people are born in this world with debilitating, painful diseases and handicaps. Others are cut down by various accidents. Some are forced to live with serious limitations. Some have some rather serious medical care that, that they need for all of their earthly life. Society, though, has, has devised a solution for these difficult problems, and it's something that our own government is even discussing now. There's a bill that uh, could be coming up in Parliament quite soon on euthanasia. You need to be aware of this. So for many people, that's the solution. It's euthanasia. And you say, well, what is euthanasia? Well, the word means good death. Good death. In other words, uh, I mean, that's a nice way of saying it, euthanasia. Uh, what they want to do is murder all of the diseased, handicapped, and the old people. They just want to do it in a gentle way. 
Well, that's one, one way of handling you know, your inconveniences. Well, as we come to Psalm 139, it's, it's got to be one of the most comforting passages in the entire Bible. Here we have the human author, David. He's writing very eloquently about the way that God actually regards him. And, and by the way, it's not just for him, it's for you. How does God view you? How does God think about you? Well, there's some very deep and vast thoughts that God has for you. Let's read about it in Psalm 139. These are the words of the living God, and He says, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. You hem me in, behind, and before, and You lay Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from Your Spirit? Where shall I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, You are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I hope you notice that David greatly valued God's thoughts toward him. And notice what David calls these thoughts that God has toward him. He calls them precious. And so he's taking comfort and he's delighting the fact that God has some thoughts toward him. God's thoughts toward him are too numerous for him to count because did you notice David says that God's thoughts toward him are like the sand which is innumerable, 
just try it. I dare you, try it someday. Go to the beach, do, do this. Start picking up little individual pieces of sand and start counting them. See how far you get. You're just, you'd just be, you'd, you'd give up quite quickly, wouldn't you? Because you'd never get the whole beach done. Never, your whole life. And, and David's saying, well, God's thoughts toward me are like the sand on the beach. And so we have to ask the question then, what are these precious thoughts to which David alludes? Well, the, the Bible is going to identify several truths in this particular psalm, and so we need to find out what are these truths. What are these truths? Not just for David, but what are these truths for you and me that we can find comfort in? The first truth we can find comfort in is that God knows all about you because He is omniscient. I'm going to use the theological words today. But whenever you see the word um, a word like omniscient, notice the first part of it is omni. In English, the, the, the omni means all. So just tack on the word all in front of shint. <laughs> it just means that God is all-knowing. He's all-knowing. So David says there's nothing in his life that is hidden from God's all-seeing gaze, which is why he says there at the very beginning, you have searched me. God had searched him. He gazed on him. The word search means to explore, to spy out, to dig deeply into. That's what God had done to David, and that's what God does to us too. So God knew the very depths of David's being. He knows the very depths of your being. God knows you like nobody else knows you because he sees you in ways nobody else can possibly see you. And By the way, not only did God searched David, but it says there in your scriptures that God knew him. Knew him. By the way, that, that, that knew or know knowledge there is, is not just a, a surface kind of a knowledge. David understands that God knew him intimately and experientially. Big difference. You can say you might know somebody because you've seen them on TV but you don't really know them intimately and experientially. But God says he knows us in an intimate and an experiential way, like nobody else does. So what exactly does God know? Well, if you look in your scriptures, you'll find in verse 2, for example, we see that God knows all your activities, all of them. Nothing is hidden from his gaze. So he knows what time you got up this morning. God knows what you had for breakfast, if you had breakfast. He knows everything you, you do, where you go, how you do it. Not only that, in verse 2 we see that God knows all your thoughts. So he knows if you were grumpy. He knows, did you really worship him in spirit and in truth this morning? Or are you just sitting here worshiping yourself? God knows all your comings and goings, according to verse 3. So he knows what you're going to do this afternoon, this evening. He knows what time you're going to go to sleep. Verse 3 also says God knows all your habits and your personality traits. All your habits and personality traits. Oh, that's a scary one, isn't it? <laughs> yep, nothing's hidden from his gaze. 
We also see in verse 4, God knows all your words even before you speak them, it says. That's why it's important you speak words that edify other Christians, Ephesians 4.29 says. That your words minister grace to the hearer instead of letting corrupt talk come out of our mouths. Because God knows nothing is hidden from His gaze. And so you'll see there that phrase, even before a word is on my tongue. In other words, God knows what you're going to say before you even speak it. He knows what you're going to say even before you were capable of speaking. So, my friends, do you get the picture here? What is the point? The point is God is intimately acquainted with every detail of your life. He knows you from the moment of conception and even before then to the grave. So from conception to the grave, from the the moment uh, before you, you were conceived there in your mother's womb all the way to the moment you enter eternity and everything in between, God knows it all. And that ought to bring us comfort. It ought to be encouraging to us that God is not a distant God, but He's a close God who is intimately experiencing life together with us. David moves on. He gives us a second truth that was comforting to him. He says in verses 5 and 6 here that God is actively involved in your life. Why? Because God is love. God's actively involved in your life because He is love. Literally, that's who He is. David says, God, you've hemmed me in behind before. You laid your hands upon me. God has a plan and a purpose for your life, my friends. You've probably heard other Christians say that God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, depending on what you mean on that, that could be true or false. There are false teachers who say that God has a wonderful plan for your life. And when the false teachers say that, they mean that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, famous, you know, those sort of things. So just just become a follower of Christ and you're going to have this wonderful life. Well, (laughs) David believed God had a wonderful plan for his life, but you study David's life, it wasn't the easy life, was it, all the time? A lot of turmoil and suffering and pain that can come in that wonderful life. But he realized, as we should, that God controls the things that happen to us, in us, and around us, and through us. It's all Him. Nobody can get away from God's active role in his or her life. My friends, you ought to find the the doctrine of God's sovereignty one of the, the greatest truths, the most comforting truths in your life. Because God is above and below and all around us. We're firmly and fully within His grasp every moment of our existence. You can never take yourself out of God's loving care and His watchful eye. The other thing we need to be aware of is that avoiding death is actually very difficult. I don't know if you thought about that before. Avoiding death is actually difficult. We like to think we're invincible, particularly when we're younger. (laughs) The successful birth of any child is regarded in the Bible as an act 
that's authorized by God and God alone. For example, look what David says in Psalm 22, verse 9. He says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. He's referring to God here. God's the one who took him from the womb. God made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. That's what David believed. So that should have an effect upon what we, what we believe and how we live out our lives. So the decision whether a human being lives or dies is not the government's decision, it's not your decision, it's God's decision. So no death or life occurs apart from the purposes of God. There is sanctity to life. The problem is, as New Zealand and other societies become more and more godless, we don't understand Bible doctrine. And so we get rubbish laws like euthanasia, abortion, these sort of things. The problem is they have bad doctrine. They don't understand the book of beginnings like Genesis, how God has given us the sanctity of life because we're made in his image. Well, if you look at David's response in verse 6, this is important because God's omniscience, his his all-knowingness is both convicting as well as comforting. It ought to be something that humbles us just as it humbled David. The fact that God knows everything about you, you can hide nothing from him because he knows all and sees all. It ought to be both humbling, it ought to be convicting, and it ought to comfort us. And so it was beyond David's capacity to grasp, and that's the way it should be. Because if you understand everything about God, then how can he possibly be God? That, that makes you on level with him, if you know everything about him and understand everything about his ways. Of course, we're not. So David was humbled. He was convicted. But he's also comforted by the truth that God is all-knowing. The third truth that David found comforting was this, that God is everywhere because he is omnipresent. God's everywhere because he's omnipresent. That just means he's all-present. He is everywhere at the same time. God will never cease to have knowledge of you. God will never forget you. He will never overlook you. He will never lose sight of you. You probably had parents who lost sight of you, like my parents lost sight of me at times. (laughs) That never happens with God. There's times uh, my my parents told me where, uh, for example, my mother lost sight of me. She's supposed to be watching me. And this might explain some of my problems. I ended up falling down the basement stairs on my head, bonk, 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 all the way down. You know, parents lose sight of their children. We lose sight of our friends. We lose sight of our spouse. It, it, that, that's what happens with us. But the God's not that way. Because you can't go anywhere without God knowing precisely where you are. God doesn't need to use a GPS or global positioning system. He doesn't have to put a tracker on you like we do with animals sometimes so we can keep track of animals. God doesn't need a map. He doesn't need these, these technology to, to know where you're at and what you're up to. 
He knows everything about you and everybody else on planet Earth all at the same time. By the way, where does God say He is according to this text? Well, if you look at verses 7 through 10, notice God talks about, in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, even there, you're, you're there. Well, of course, that, that's God's eternal dwelling place. Of course, God's there, but some of the others might surprise us at times. So where does God say He is? Well, He says, I'm even, I'm even in Sheol. That's the place where you go when you die. That's the Hebrew word for the place you, you go when you die. Even God's there. God says, I'm even there at the dawn. He's, that refers to the east, the place, of course, sun rises in the east. The, God says, I'm there at the sea. And, of course, in Israel, the Mediterranean Sea was to the west of Israel and still is. So what, what's the point, my friends? God's saying it doesn't matter where you go. He's saying, I am there. And that's why I put a compass up there on the screen for you. And the point is this. It doesn't matter if you go north, south, east, or west. God's there. No matter where we go in life, no matter what time of life, even after death, God is going to guide you in his will. God says, even in Sheol, even in death, I'm there. So, what's the answer to the question then? Can you hide from God? Can you hide from God? No. Can you be lost by God? Can you be forgotten by God, overlooked by God? Does God ever lose sight of you? The answer is no, my friends. He never loses sight of you. Never forgets you. Never overlooks you. It ought to be comforting. Because you can go anywhere in this world you can go deep, high, sideways, you know, even in death. You have a God who knows you, who sees you, who's aware of what's going on in your life. So, it's kind of silly when we try to run from God then, isn't it? How dare we try to do like what the prophet Jonah did when God commands him to go to Nineveh? He goes the opposite direction. <laughs> Pretty silly, isn't it? It's foolish. You can't hide from God. You'll never be able to hide from God. And, and this, this ought to affect our lives, by the way, because I'm thinking of just last week, for example, when I was painting. And there was a part on the house I was, uh, you know, I, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you. I was actually tempted at one point to, to not paint the certain part of the house because nobody's ever going to see it the part that's kind of hiding behind this pillar on the house. I, you know, for one split second, I was tempted, I'll just skip that part and move on, because nobody's going to see it. And then I was like, I was reminded of this truth right here in Psalm 139. Wait a minute. My boss will see me. My boss will see me. God will see me. He'll know if I skip over this part, if I don't paint this part. <laughs> so the reality of God's all-presence should affect our lives at work, at home, no matter what we're doing. It should affect our lives, shouldn't it? Because the boss will see you. He knows. See, we work for him. We work for him. He's the boss. He's the one whom we serve. He's the one whom we work for. We do it all for him, for his honor and glory. So 
how good of a job are you doing, my friend? Are you living the light of his presence? You should. It should affect everything you do. There's a fourth truth that David found comforting and helpful is this. Verses 11 and 12 tell us that God is never limited in his understanding of you. Why? Because he sees all. He sees all. Even in the darkness, he says there in verse 11. (laughs) Yeah, the, the darkness and the light, God says, it's all the same to me. Nothing can ever cause God to have a reduced understanding about you. Not even in the darkness. And by the way, I don't think this is just referring to physical darkness. I think it's also referring to dark trials of our souls. Sometimes we can feel alone during those dark nights of our soul. I've recently heard of several pastors committing suicide and quitting the ministry because they felt like even though they're surrounded by hundreds of people and they've been pouring out their souls to hundreds of people, they felt alone, discouraged. Not a good place, because that's not the way it should be. And so we need to recognize that God is never limited in his understanding of us because he does see all. There are places which we think nobody knows about, those places in our minds we think nobody else knows about, and it's probably true. Nobody else does know about, but God does. He's present in our dark times. He knows exactly what we're going through during those times of despair or depression, the times when we're suffering and we're really struggling. God knows, and you can never fall into any situation or circumstance that is shielded from his view. It's not possible. God knew as much about you, my friend, in the first few moments after you were conceived in your mother's womb, as he knows about you today, he sees you fully, he sees you completely. God's not limited by time. He knows you fully and completely. That's comforting. The fifth truth that David found comforting was this, that God made you because he is the creator. He is the creator verse 13 through 15 tells us that we see that god knows us intimately experientially we we see here that god is all powerful by the way it's proven here that god has made you just as he did david notice david talks about god made him skillfully in his mother's womb god created those inward parts. By the way, what's that referring to? The inward parts that David's talking about there is, is your vital organs, things like your heart, your liver, your lungs, even things like your emotions. You're made in God's image. You're different from the animals. Your emotions is one of those things that makes you different from the animals, it makes you part of that, that image of God. And so God knit David here like a skilled artisan would would weave various pieces of thread together making some tapestry. Where did he do that? David says this work of creation was done in his mother's womb. Now this is an important argument as we think about the whole abortion debate. Uh, Ladies, unlike the men, you have a very distinguished 
position and responsibility because the womb that God has given you is God's workshop. We as men don't have that. You have a workshop. For nine months out of the year, God works in that workshop to form a being that is made in His image. It's a special place, a special thing. Verse 15 mentions David's frame. What's that? Uh, frame there refers to the bones in the skeleton. Even those things, your, your very skeleton is formed by God. It's in his view. It's in his eyes. And so the Bible also says there, God made David in secret. It's another way of just saying that David's made in the womb. He's, he's away from the gazing eyes of human beings. The womb is that unseen place concealed from human eyes. And the womb is where we're woven together, kind of like a multicolored tapestry or rug. What does that mean? It means your parents are not responsible for having made you the way you are. You can't say it's my parents' fault, or I, or I don't like my nose, or my eyes, or my hair, or my body, or you know my abilities. It's my parents' fault. You're not made after their image. God is the creator of all life. He's the one who knit you together and made you the way you are. He's the one who took all the strands of DNA and made up your genetic code the way it is. So stop blaming your parents. We do that too often. You know, if we don't like something about us, we blame our parents, right? Or if we do like something about them, you know, their parents get the credit. No, give God the credit. Yeah, we often talk about family traits, but the reality is God has built into you your personality, your abilities, your not just the physical things about you, He's built into you even the spiritual gifts you have. He's the, God's the one who's given you your mother's smile or your father's ears or your grandmother's dimple or your grandfather's toes or whatever it might be, okay? Um, we, we talk a lot about these things family traits and their personalities. They don't come from your family. They come from God. David says so here in Psalm 139. And so that ought to stop the grumbling and complaining then, shouldn't it? <laughs> we, we too often grumble and complain about things. And that shows a bad theology, a bad doctrine, uh, unbelief on our part. We're not we're not seeing things the way God sees them. And so if we're grumbling and complaining, we're not really trusting God and not believing what He says in His Word here, then are we? Let's stop grumbling and complaining. But instead, let's praise God for what He has done because He doesn't make mistakes. The sixth truth that we need to understand is this, according to verse 16, is that God personally planned your destiny because He is sovereign. By sovereign, that just means that God reigns supreme over all of His creation. He's the one who's in charge. He's the one who rules and reigns over all of His creation. Verse 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God's purpose was established for you and me even before our birth. That's amazing. God sees us 
even better than the ultrasound saw you. Maybe you didn't have one of those when you were in your mother's womb. But I was privileged to have the technology of ultrasound uh, available for the birth of my children. And so it was, it was, it was amazing to go and, and have, have a nurse put that little thing on, on my children, or should, should I say God's children, there in their mother's womb, who happens to be my spouse, and, and to see that little baby there in the womb as God is forming it and knitting it together. Here's a question for you. How many days does God sovereignly ordain for you? Do you know? The answer is, of course you don't know. (laughs) But verse 16 clearly says, God knows every one of them. God's the one who set that number in place even before you were born. God said, hey, you, I have this many days for you. You're not going to get any more than that. Now, you might get less. The Bible does say you can shorten your life by your sin. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, God says there's some of those Christians who who died an early death because of their sin. They were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. He said some have died because of that. So you can shorten your life, but you can't make it any longer. God's ordained the exact number of days. You're not going to die before the day God has set for you. In fact, God says there in verse 16, he's actually got it written in a book in heaven. He knows exactly what it is. And so those who say, well, God has a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) You know, those who preach this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel don't understand the scriptures. God does have a wonderful plan for your life. But it's it's probably going to look different from the way people often preach it. I'll give you an example. The prophet Jeremiah had a wonderful plan for his life. But if you know anything about Jeremiah, you know he had a very hard ministry. Very little fruit. He had to do some very strange things too, didn't he? Read, read Jeremiah. The sort of things God had him do. <laughs> it was a hard ministry. But look how many times God actually personalizes his statement to Jeremiah here. Jeremiah 1, verse 4. It's on the screen. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God even knew his profession. God consecrated him. God formed him in the womb. Who's doing the action? God. God is. Jeremiah was a person who was fully known by God, fully formed by God, fully used by God, someone who is set apart for God's purposes. That's what it means to be consecrated for God. That didn't look like the false teachers of today who say that God had a wonderful plan for your life. Here's another one. How about John the Baptist? Did God have a wonderful plan for his life? Yeah, he did. Again, not not how often the false teachers of today say it, though. 
we see in Luke chapter 1 that John the Baptist was somebody who expressly said he had a unique destiny from the time of his mother's womb. This is important in a whole abortion debate, by the way, as well as the euthanasia debate. You need to understand these truths. Look what Look what it says about John the Baptist, Luke 1, verse 15. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. God did have a wonderful plan for his life, but it included beheading. Beheading was included in that. Right? Eating locusts and wild honey and that sort of stuff, right? Uh, that's not how the false teachers of today would define a wonderful life. Here's another one. How about the Apostle Paul? Did he have a wonderful life? God had a wonderful life for him too, didn't he? Included persecutions and shipwrecks and stonings and beheading. Right? But here's what Paul says in Galatians 1, verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Hmm. God did have a wonderful plan for his life, but it included a lot of suffering and pain and death. And so you might be tempted to think, well, hey, uh, what does that have to do with me? You know, I'm, I'm not like John the Baptist. I'm not like the Apostle Paul or Prophet Jeremiah. I mean, those are special guys. Well, my friends, God does have a unique plan and purpose for every child that is conceived. You may not understand his plan fully. You probably never will. Maybe not even in heaven. We may not be able to comprehend God's purposes for our lives. But we can know that with faith, we have a perfect God who has a perfect plan for us because He doesn't make mistakes. So we can trust Him then, can't we? Let me ask you this. Can anyone honestly read these verses here in Psalm 139 and believe it's okay to murder babies while they're still in their mother's womb? You know, we, we call it abortion. Others call it choice. God calls it murder. I'm going to give you several reasons just from the Bible here of why abortion is wrong. Why is it wrong? Number one, according to verse 13, Psalm 139, verse 13, it destroys God's creative process. God says in verse 13, for you... For you, David speaking on God's behalf here, he says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God is the one who does that work. So if you destroy that baby, you're destroying God's work. How dare anybody even think about doing that? Verse 15 says that abortion invades the secrecy of the womb. It invades the secrecy of the womb. That's God's workshop. That is God's workshop. How dare we enter and destroy His workshop. Verse 16, it does away with God's future plans. God does have a plan, as we saw in verse 16. He has a plan for every human being conceived in the womb. So those who kill and murder babies... They're destroying God's future plans. 
And according to verse 17 and 18, it steals God's glory. Look at verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. How dare we steal God's glory? How dare we destroy his image? It's not our right to do that. In fact, God put it in the Ten Commandments. According to Exodus 20, verse 13, here's the fifth reason. Abortion breaks God's law. Murder is not okay. It's not okay. Life starts at conception. The moment that happens, if you destroy that, then you're destroying God's work and breaking God's law. So listen to what happens, my friends, as a man's sperm and a woman's egg form a baby. Here's what happens. I'll just put some pictures on the screen here for you. So my understanding is from my study that at day, starting somewhere around day five, approximately, the, this new person that God's creating in the mother's womb burrows into the rich lining of the woman's uterus. At day 15, the heart is formed. Day 15, the heart is formed. Days 20 through 24, the brain, the spinal cord, the nervous systems begin to develop. It's a human being. So the heart begins to beat regularly somewhere around day 20, approximately. It varies, of course. Somewhere around day 28, the muscles of the backbone start forming. Arms and legs begin to show around that time. Around day 35, the mouth, the ears, and the nose take shape. Days 40 to 45, brain waves appear. Brain waves appear. So, you know, if you consider death, you know, some doctors consider death, well, is that when the heart stops? Is it when the brain stops? Well, there's two different ways of, of looking at that. So if you, kill, if you kill that child at day 20, that's death. Is, it, is that murder? I think it is. If you might, you know, if you think, well, it's the brain waves, well, then it's murder at day 40. I've given you some pictures here from a UK website, but uh, around somewhere around week eight, the baby can actually sit up. In the next slide, you'll see this, where the baby is now able to actually feel pain. Uh, in, in fact, I, my nightstand book at the moment is talking about how how a uh, abortion doctor filmed was able to film how a baby would would try to get away from the, the device that comes into the mother's womb to kill that child. Even at a very early time period, the baby can, can feel that painful stimuli. Months four through five, the baby is approximately eight to ten inches long or 20 to 26 centimeters long. Month six, it weighs approximately a pound and a half. And babies born at this age can actually survive with proper medical care. I have a, uh, a friend who was uh, going to be aborted, and he was born around this time. And he, he only weighed a pound and a half when he was born, and he's still alive today, doing well. At month seven, the baby recognizes its mother's voice. It can see, it can hear, it can taste, it can touch. At month nine, of course, birth occurs somewhere around that time period. 
But that child was a child before it comes out of the mother's womb. And so these are just some of the things that shows us that a child is a child from the moment of conception. Anyway, we could talk a long time about that, but I hope that helps. David moves on to to give us a seventh truth, and he says, God has vast thoughts of you because he's intimate. God is intimate. He has vast thoughts of you, and they're precious, verse 17 says. Those thoughts that God has toward you should be precious. These divine truths were precious to David. They should be precious to us. They were vast. They were beyond comprehension. He tried to, to list these truths about God, but they're innumerable. The point is, like the sand on the seashore, all the beaches in the world, you take all that sand together, it's just (laughs) huge, isn't it? How much sand is on all the beaches of the world? Take the deserts of the world, like the Sahara. God's thoughts are that vast. God is so amazing to David here. He says, I can't stop thinking about God and his thoughts toward me. By the way, that's, I hope that's what you're trying to do as well. That's what you and I should be doing. We ought to be thinking, who is God and what does he think about me? What does he know about me? That's, that's the sort of meditation we ought to be doing. And when we do that, you know what's going to happen? Your noisy soul is going to be driven away by this glorious truth. The eighth truth, I'll move on, is that God tests you because He is holy. God tests you because God is holy. We see that in verses 19 through 24. God's testing was taking place in David's life, but God also tests us. God has a purpose in this testing, though. Look at the, we see in verses 19 through 22 that God's testing is going to show where our loyalty lies. Who are you? Who and what are you loyal to? Who and what are you loyal to? As David says in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. So God brought these enemies into David's life to test him. God was in charge of those enemies. By the way, may I remind you, friend, God's in charge of your enemies, whoever they might be. And he'll bring enemies into your life to test you. See, where do your loyalties really lie? And so with holy zeal, David pledged his allegiance to this awesome God. He desired that God would slay the wicked. Why? Just because he's, you know, David was mean and ugly? No. Because they're speaking against God. They were opposing God. That's, that, that, that's the right motive, by the way the right motive. God's enemies were David's enemies. And God and David could, couldn't be neutral toward people who were attacking God. Just like he did when he, he experienced Goliath. You remember that giant named Goliath? He kept coming out every day and blaspheming God. And David says, hey, why are all my fellow Israelites cowarding over here in the trenches while this guy blasphemes God? I'm not going to let that happen. I don't care if I'm a little twerp, too young to be in the army. I'm going to go get me five smooth stones. I'm going out with, I'm going out there with my sling, and I'm going to deal with that giant. How dare he blaspheme God? 
David took that attitude into his kingship. There's no way he's going to be neutral toward anybody attacking God. <laughs> By the way, that's, that's the way we ought to be as well. Do it in a lovingly way, of, of course. But let me ask you, do you have that kind of a burden for God's kingdom work? Do you have that kind of a concern for the cause of Christ? Where do your loyalties lie? Number two, God's testing is going to help you deal with your sin. It's going to help you deal with your sin. Look what David says in verse 23. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Of course, God does know those things. David's deliberately hard on himself because he understood the very serious nature of his indwelling sin. And what is he doing here? Because he knows that truth, he knows his depravity, he invites God to search him. He's inviting God to come in and explore his heart, reveal just how wicked his heart is. That's a good invitation. That's a good prayer. That's something we ought to be doing regularly. Maybe every single morning when you wake up. (laughs) Now, why did David do that? That's not a nice prayer. That's not a very nice invitation. Why did he do that? Well, he wanted God to make his heart known to him. Why would David do that? Because he, he knew just how deceptive his heart was. He knew how wicked his heart was. Maybe he understood Jeremiah 17, verse 9, which says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The answer to that question is God does. And that's why you need to pray for God to reveal just how wicked and sinful your heart is. And then when God does reveal it, the proper response is to forsake your sin, to repent, confess your sin, and return to Him. And then in verse 24, we see that God's testing is going to reveal any grievous way in us. So David asked that God would see and reveal to him any offense, any offensive way in which that sin was grieving God. Because your sin's really against God. Only then, once his own sins confessed and removed, then could God lead him in the way of holiness. Which is the next point, number four, that God's testing will lead you in the way of holiness. Because look what verse 24 says. David says, see if there be any gravest way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The way everlasting is the way that God loves. And so my friends, the path of holiness is where you and I should want to be. But do you? Do you? Do you agree with Psalm 1? Psalm 1 verse 6 says this, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. That's the end of the wicked. They're going to perish. But see, God knows the way of the righteous, and God will bless you. So let me ask you this, my friends. How conscious of you are of the all-seeing eyes of God upon your life? Are you conscious of the all-seeing God, eyes of God as He gazes upon you throughout your day, not just during your own personal devotions, not just when you're praying to Him. How about at the other times of the day? When you're tempted to be lazy at work. Are you aware of God's 
all-seeing gaze in his eyes. How about when you're, you're tempted to click on that pornography website? Or you do that little search on your smartphone. You're, you think you're in your own little private world on your smartphone. You want to look at that pornography. Are you aware of God's presence and that God sees? I, I have to confess, that's one of the great truths that's kept me from pornography. It's a, it's, it's, it should. It should. We need to practice this more. And so we, I'll ask you this question here. How can you cultivate the practice of the presence of God then? How is that going to be lived out in your life in, in practical ways? Well, it, it's, it's got it's to start with knowing God. How are you going to know God? Read His Word. Read the Bible. This is how God has revealed Himself to you. As you walk about, is seeing his creation. Think, hmm, what does that tree reveal about God? That person I see over there, that person's made in God's image. What do I learn about God as I, as I watch people? See, everything around you ought to be pointing your mind and your heart to God. And as you do that, it's going to help you to practice the presence of God in your life. Meditating upon God, memorizing His Word. You, you're hiding God's Word in your heart so you don't sin against Him. That's what the psalmist said. That's one way of practicing the presence of God. Reading good Christian books will help you do that. Anyway, those are just a few things. And as you do that, the more you, you're meditating upon God, putting stuff before you that causes you to think about God then you'll be practicing the presence of God more and more in your life where it just becomes who you are. It's not something you have to put on. You know, it's not like I'm going to go do my checklist now. I've got to do my McChain reading for the day. My McChain, my McChain reading list for today says I'm supposed to read this psalm. All right, check that off. I read that proverb, and I read that. Check that off. You know, okay, I meet with God during this from 9 to 9.15 in the morning, and and the rest of the day's mine. No. Doesn't work that way. <laughs> the whole day's God's. So are you practicing the presence of God? I hope you are. Let me ask you, how how can God, who is of course infinite, but at the same time God is intimate with us, how can he do that? How can God be transcendent and imminent? How can God who is perfect yet be personal. Well, that's the reality. That's the way God has revealed Himself in a psalm like this. The God who knows all is the God who controls all. He is directly involved at the deepest level of our lives. So not only does God operate on a macro level, God also operates on a micro level. God never misses a tree for the forest. Never. Never misses the little parts for the big parts, if you will. The Bible says no creature is hidden from his sight. You are never away from God's presence. This God has skillfully made us. He's ordained us all of our days. He knows the number of your days. And so this psalm here, my friends, ought to be a comfort and an encouragement to us, an exhortation to us. All of that at the same time, it ought to 
uh, cause us to live humbly before our God as we see who he is and how he has revealed himself. The question is, do you want to walk with God intimately? God wants to walk intimately with you. He has vast, big, awesome, great thoughts toward you. Do you have the same toward him? Well, if you want to walk with that kind of a God intimately, then you have to respond appropriately to God. You have to yield your life to God, knowing that God knows you best. He loves you more than you even love yourself. That's saying a lot. <laughs> so knowing this God who knows you the best is going to change your life. You'll never be the same when you know God this way. When you understand that some of those vast, deep thoughts he has toward you, you'll never be the same. You don't want to go back to the way you were before. So may you grow to know this God more deeply each day of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for revealing some things about us that you know about us. So, Father, we ask that your word would change us. We would be conformed to the image of Christ. Father, forgive us because we we don't know you as we should. We are lazy. We, We worship other gods too often. Idols of our own heart. We worship ourselves. Father, would you show us our idolatry? Would you show us, as David says here, search us, know our hearts, try us, know our thoughts, see if there be any grievous way in us, and then lead us in the way everlasting. Would you do that? We know you're a gracious, loving God. You're waiting for us to return whenever we go away from you. We know our hearts are prone to leave the God we love, as the song says, that is our heart. It is prone to leave you. But may we understand who you are. Run back to you to find grace in time of need. May we understand the deceitfulness of our own hearts and just how wicked they are and how they constantly try to divert our attention, our love, and our gaze away from you to anything else. But may you be our focus. May you be our worship and our and our in our God alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.